So welcome everybody this morning, and I pray that you will be blessed here in worshiping together before God. We're starting this new series in Ecclesiastes, and so I'm introducing Ecclesiastes and, and beginning with the first chapter of Ecclesiastes. And um, as Graham said, this is not a book commonly studied or preached from in many churches. Uh, the good reason for that is because it's a difficult book. Um, first of all, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You can pretty much sum up the message of Ecclesiastes in that phrase. And that is a bleak phrase. Of all the books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes is the most bleak um, and probably uncompromising in the character of its nature, to, of its message to us. Um, it's bleak. And of all the books of the Bible, it's probably the one that speaks most directly to a modern mindset. So 3,000 years before nihilism, 3,000 years before existentialism, we have vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Compare these, um, these two statements, one a verse from Ecclesiastes, verse 14 of chapter 1, with a statement by the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre from the last century. Ecclesiastes says this, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. That's verse 14 of chapter 1. And Jean-Paul Sartre says this, Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. We live in a time when the, the Western civilization's project to challenge the reality of God has kind of reached a new plateau. It's as if Western civilization has taken that piece of chalk that you saw in the video and has blanked out the place on the blackboard that represents heaven. Openly, first time in the history of humanity when a whole society has openly challenged the possibility of God. Life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. Ecclesiastes is, is a is a bleak book. It's a difficult book because of its, its message, the nature of its message, and the unrelenting way that the preacher, King Solomon, unpacks that message for us or relates that message for us. But it's also difficult because it's not a book that has a, a, a structure or a style. It's very ancient in its form. So while it speaks to our modern mindset, it does it in a very, very ancient way. And what I mean by that is, if you, if you, looked, at a, if you looked at a number of commentaries on uh, Ecclesiastes, for example, you'd find that commentators have a really hard time finding a structure for Ecclesiastes. Um, and some of them, the more honest ones, will just give up. And they'll say, there really isn't any discernible structure in the sense that we would understand or expect to study this book. But we would be wrong to assume that there isn't any structure at all. If you look at the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 9, this is the, the compiler, as he's mentioned or referred to in the video, the person who's sort of drawn all this together and speaks at the beginning, the first 11 verses in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, introducing the preacher and his message, and then at the very end, kind of summing it all up. Um, and in verse 9 of uh, chapter 12, the compiler or the comp commentator says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying 
and arranging many proverbs with great care. So this book has been very carefully put together. And the proverbs and the sayings and the vignettes and the reflect, personal reflections and everything that's there has been put together, if not to make a direct point, to create a particular effect, particularly to, to bring about understanding and to do that in a building, in a progressive sort of way. And this style of communicating, it's, it's a very ancient form. For, uh, for most of us, we, we don't sort of teach by proverbs and parables so much anymore. I mean, we have a sense that they, that they are there to teach, and so we, we come to the scriptures with that understanding. But, and uh, um, among the churches of the men and people, the believers, they had a monthly leadership meeting where, each, where a representative of each local church would be called to and attend a meeting at a central location to discuss the issues of the church. This is a very young church, so they were still growing, working out what it means to be a Christian, how to lead the churches, what it means to be a church, and so forth. They would have these monthly meetings, and they would take place over a long period of time. Um, well, it sort of felt like that to me at any rate, because they, they invited me to attend these meetings when they held them. So the, the, the meeting would start sometime around 9 o'clock at night, and partly because people had to walk long distances to get there, so they were kind of trickling in through the course of the day. And as they arrived, they would be fed a meal, and they would begin eating and kind of catching up with each other, and passing greetings and sort of swapping stories. And, and this would go on for several hours until... At a certain point, there was, apparently, there was a critical mass of the right people, and the meeting would begin. Now, I, I, never, I never saw or heard of an agenda for any one of these meetings, ever. Um, but apparently there was one. And the meeting was never called to a formal beginning, but at a certain point, as some people were still eating their meal and others were chatting and whatnot, somebody would just sort of almost casually say, they would quote a proverb. According to our fathers, as we were told, where you tie a goat, that's where he eats. And then there'd be a kind of a collective nodding and, oh, that's right, yes, that's, that's, we remember that, yes. It's very much like another proverb, somebody would say. When a cunning man dies, it's a cunning man who buries him. Ah, yes, that's right, of course, yes. And it would go on. Another proverb would follow, maybe a little longer parable. This discussion, conversation would go like this for, for quite a while, maybe for a couple of hours. Now, I learned that at a, at the, 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 with the quoting of the first proverb, the meeting has officially started. We are now on agenda item one. What is agenda item one? I have no idea. But the meeting is progressing, and there's this gradual discussion and swapping of proverbs and kind of testing of ideas back and forth taking place, and it's going someplace. And then after this had gone on for maybe a couple of hours, someone would say, well, based on what we've all talked about here, and according to the, the wisdom that our fathers before us have had, and from what we see from the scripture, Let's agree that it's probably all right for our people, the, the believers among the men, when they attend the dance festivals at the harvest festival, that they can participate in the dance because it doesn't have any negative pagan overtones. And I, I would be, at that point of the meeting, I'd say, that was your conclusion? That was the agenda item and that's the conclusion? And then they would move on. Somebody would quote another proverb and they were off again to the next agenda item. 
I struggled the, the whole time that we were there. I struggled to, to make sense of these meetings. Although I did, have, I did have a little personal victory that I'm very proud of. So I have to make this part of the story for you. But one time in the course of a meeting, having quoted these proverbs and parables about uh, relative to, I, I knew absolutely nothing about what they were talking about, what the agenda item was. They looked at me at a certain point and they said, and what do you think? And I was a little bit uh, caught off guard, but I thought about it for a moment, and I thought, well, I do know a proverb that I can quote in this language. So I said, well, uh, I don't have a donkey, therefore I don't quarrel with the hyena. <laughs> and there was this stunned silence. And then they burst into laughter, and they were saying, yes, that's exactly right. You were absolutely, you really understand us. You got it. <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> and still have no idea what's going on here. But at any rate, that was a small victory. And um, from that point on, they esteemed me much more greatly as being wise and knowledgeable. <laughs> but you see the point. They weren't, they weren't conducting a discussion or an argument or debate like we would do. They were sharing these ideas, reflecting an understanding of wisdom as it's been communicated over a long period of time from the past and from the scripture. And around this, they were gradually trying to build a consensus of understanding that would deal with, that would address the issues before them and their responsibilities as leaders. And that's very much what is going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this progressive uh, drawing together of more and more proverbs and parables and vignettes and personal reflections to make a progressively more powerful point or understanding, to create this effect of understanding for the reader of Ecclesiastes. And that's what we're invited to consider. And it's difficult because it's a very different approach to what we're used to. But through the course of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon, and we, we understand it's King Solomon because um, in the beginning, in the first chapter, uh, verse 12, Solomon identifies himself as the preacher who was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then through the course of the book, of course, many of the examples and the stories and the personal reflections line up perfectly with the life of Solomon. So we understand very clearly uh, this is Solomon speaking to us from probably from old age. Throughout the book, Solomon, the preacher, he, he raises these subjects and he tests them out. And sometimes, even very much, as you saw in the video, from personal experience, reflects on them. And then he demonstrates how ultimately empty each one of these categories of our lives is. So for example, in the beginning, wisdom, first chapter, he, he talks about wisdom and knowledge. Then he moves on to pleasure, seeking and pursuing pleasure as a purpose in life. He goes on to talk about work and ambition, um, as, as something to give our lives direction and purpose. He even talks about justice, seeking justice. And as I look at these things, and again, the, the degree to which he's really speaking to the modern mindset, I think they line up really well with the generations of my own family. For example, my parents came out of the Great Depression and the Second World War. And for them, life was all about work. It was all about hard work, 
working hard and building a future, building a future for their children, their grandchildren, for their society. And work, hard work, was a great and a high virtue. And I remember my father, who was in business in his working life, was very dedicated to the notion that his business, his company, would be a company that would create work for other people, that would give them a decent living and purpose. For him, that was really, really important. And the only time I remember seeing him distressed about this was when, in the 1970s in the United States, when there was a financial downturn, and his business actually had to lay people off. For him, that was like the ultimate failure. He wasn't in it to make money, he was in it to create work. And he was dedicated, deeply dedicated, my parents were dedicated to the value and the importance of work. My generation, I represent the baby boomers. And what is the classic description of the baby boomers? We are the me generation, right? It's all about us. It's still all about us. We're hearing more and more voices telling us, challenging that maybe it's not so much about us, but at any rate, up to this point in time, it's all about us. And our generation are notorious for pursuing pleasure, self-fulfillment, those kinds of things. And, and I remember years ago, a number of years ago, in the United States, I was watching this program on television. There was an advertisement. I think it was for insurance. And I don't remember what it was about, but it, I do remember what it said. At the end of the advertisement, there was this phrase. They said, you can't take it with you, but you don't have to leave it to your children. <laughs> and, and mostly, as I look across the audience here, it's the people of my generation who are laughing about that, right? That's typical, though. That's, that's sort of classic uh, as, a, as a stereotype of the baby boomer, me generation looking for, seeking purpose, meaning, direction in the pursuit of pleasure and self-fulfillment. And the generation of my children, and one of the things that, that I think is actually quite admirable about them that I appreciate, is they're very, very focused on, they're very, very interested in injustice in the world that we live in. The things that have come about because of the self-centeredness of the previous generations and so forth. The injustices the corruption of the world that we live in, and a desire to correct those things, to find redress for the world in causes and the pursuit of justice and social justice. And you see this manifest in many ways for that generation and the things that drive them and are important to them. And to all three of these generations, the preacher uncompromisingly speaks very clearly to each one, and he says this, to the generation of my parents. If you're looking for purpose, direction, meaning in life, through work, through hard work, and the virtue of hard work, you will come to the end of your life and you will hand all of that over, everything that you've worked for, to another generation who won't acknowledge what you've done and who will have a completely different perspective on its value and what it's there for and you will hand it over to them, and they will do whatever they please with it. And to the generation of the baby boomers, to those who look for meaning in life through the pursuit of pleasure, 
self-fulfillment, self-actualization. Ecclesiastes says this. If that's where you're looking for meaning, value, purpose in your life through the pursuit of pleasure, satisfying your own needs, you will live a hollow life. And you will come to the end of that hollow life and you will feel empty. And that's how you will leave this world. Uncompromising. Absolutely honest. And to the generation after that, the generation of my children, Ecclesiastes says this, if you're looking to build your life around the need to redress the injustices of the world, to pursue just causes, and to give your life to this, you will come to the end of your life. You will leave this world and it will be just as corrupt and unjust as it was when you came into it. Uncompromising. Absolutely uncompromising. This is, this is the message of the preacher to us and even, even us in our times. But we would be wrong if we thought that that was the only message of Ecclesiastes. As the video pointed out, the, the preacher speaks almost entirely in terms of life under the sun. And there are only occasionally in passing men mentions or references to life under heaven. But there is a sense in which there's something else going on in the background here that the preacher is pointing to, maybe hinting at. The difficulty is Solomon only had so much that he could fall back on. He didn't have the full picture in front of him. He had his, his wisdom, his experience of life, and a vague understanding that there must be something more coming. But he didn't have the full picture. And for us to get the perspective that we need, we have to listen for the echoes of Ecclesiastes in other parts of the scripture. So for example, again in the video, you saw the, the character, the, the preacher, Writing that word in Hebrew on the blackboard, that word was the word hevel. It's the word right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, hevel. Literally, it means vapor or vanity. And as he got progressively more disenchanted, he wrote out the phrase hevel hevelim, vanity of vanities. Important phrase, because if we follow that phrase, that expression through the scripture, there are two places in the writings of the Apostle Paul where Paul picks up on this very importantly with a real clear reference to his understanding of Ecclesiastes. And one of them is in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul in verse 17, verses 17 and 18, Paul talks about, he says to the Ephesian Christians, don't walk like the Gentiles. Don't be like the unbelievers. In the futility the same word there, in the futility of their thinking. They're alienated from the life of God and darkened in their understanding. Same word, futility. So Paul is telling the Ephesians, don't be futile in your thinking, in your outlook, your perspective. Same expression as Ecclesiastes. But there's another passage, and we'll look at this one a little more closely. And this one comes from the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul again, chapter 8 of Romans, and I'm going to start reading from verse 18. So verses 18 through 23 to start with, and listen for this echo again. Verse 18, for I consider 
The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, and there it is, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now this is quite sharp, because what Paul is telling us is that futility, that outlook that's represented in the book of Ecclesiastes is not a mistake, it's part of God's plan. But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of birth, childbirth, until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what Paul is telling us here is that this difficult world that we live in, this life that we lead, that the life that appears to be life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes described it. It's like there's this veil drawn across our, our faces. Not just us, but the whole of creation. This veil that's been drawn across our vision. And we can't see past that veil. Nothing can see past that veil. It's like um, a, a, a quote, a, a passage from the, the Danish writer, Karen Blixen. She said, God, and God made the world round so that no one can see very far over the horizon. That's what it feels like. And it, not just for us, but the whole of the created order is frustrated, is living in frustration and desperation because it doesn't know where all this is headed and how it's meant to come out. It can only see so far. And what it sees doesn't look very good. That's life under the sun. So there's this, there's this veil. But for us, for those of us who seek shelter under the mercy and the forgiveness of God, from life under the sun, God pulls back that veil just a bit. We have the first fruits, just the beginning of what we will become in the spirit. But he pulls back that veil and there is this brilliant light that emerges and we get a glimpse of something beyond and we realize and we know and then we begin to see this is not about and we are not locked in the endless cycle of life under the sun until death. Something has happened, and we have been essentially transported, transformed from that life to what the preacher hints at as life under the sun, under the heaven, life under heaven. So this is not a story of, uh, of the, the laborer who works endlessly, exhaustingly from one day to the next, putting one foot in front of the next and going through the motions of every day with no prospect of change or hope for the future except an, just a, a, a lifelong pursuit of the same old stuff from one day to the next. This is a completely different story altogether. Let me continue with the passage here. From verse 24... For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, 
We wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So let's unpack that a bit here. For those of us who seek refuge, shelter, under the mercy and the forgiveness of God, there is a glimmer of something beyond that we've, be, we've, we've already begun to see the first parts of. Now, the whole of creation is waiting for that final thing to be revealed. And what is that? That's, that's God's glorification of us. No less, as it says here, than the completion of what God has started in finally and fully glorifying us. But this is the problem. This is hard. It's hard. It, it, even though it says we need to wait patiently, we do wait patiently, it's very challenging and very difficult because what we know and where we come from is life under the sun. That's what's familiar to us. And so, and it even says in this passage that this is like childbirth, the pains of childbirth. This process of the point at which the veil is slightly parted and we get that first glimpse to the end result, which we have to wait for. And this is, this is the problem, this is the challenge for us, because, because life under the sun is what we know. It's very tempting for us at this point, as we patiently look for the completion of this, it's very easy for us to think, okay, we wait, but this is the way it's going to be. It's just like this, this wearisome sort of cycle, one day after the next, until we get to the end. And then God is going to resolve it all. Okay. Or, perhaps a little bit, one step back from that, I think this will be resolved in the end. There is a point at which God will complete this all. But sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder, is life under the sun all there is? When I go to work, every day, and I do the same kinds of things, and I really struggle to find any purpose in that or any satisfaction. When I commit myself to the care and the support and the raising of my children, but sometimes it just feels relentless and like it absolute, takes absolutely everything I have to give and then more. And I study and I prepare and I try to, to, to perfect myself for the world that I'm looking to go out into to work and to try to make a living. And it just never really seems to be enough. It never gets me where I think I need to go. When we're in that place, it's very easy for us, it's very tempting for us to say, well, life under the sun is just the operative thing. And that's where we are. What Paul is saying here is that's totally false. This life, this world, for us now, transformed, has a meaning and a purpose we don't see fully. We just caught that little glimpse. But even now, even here, where we're headed, what's happening for us, it has eternal significance. It is no longer life under the sun. It truly is life under heaven. And it's like the picture, the story of the difference between that laborer and the champion athlete. We are training for the Olympics. And it's hard. It's hard work takes an enormous amount of commitment and effort and focus. And we get to a point in that process where we feel exhausted. And we wonder how we can go on. And we even question how we can compete, let alone win. 
But as it says, the Spirit helps us. And God himself intervenes. He steps in. He's the good coach who comes along and he says, look, I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. I know you've been putting in a great effort. And I know you feel like you just can't go another step. But guess what? I know what you can do. In fact, I know that you're going to win. I know the outcome of this. And so what I'm telling you now is, pick yourself up and run five more laps of the oval. As tired as you are, run five more laps of the oval. And I'm telling you to do this because I know you can, and I'm going to run it with you. I'm going to run this next stretch with you, and when you get to the fifth lap and your legs are going out from underneath you, I'm going to put my arm around you, and we're going to finish together. This is the message that Paul gives us as an answer to Ecclesiastes and what he says about life under the sun. This is the hope that he's calling us to here. In the moments when we most doubt it, God himself intervenes, he steps in, and he even prays for us. Now, what I'd like to invite you to do, since we're going through Ecclesiastes now as a church, and we will be for several weeks, read Ecclesiastes. It's not an easy read. You don't have to do it all in one sitting. In fact, I highly recommend you don't do it in one sitting. There's this little ironic comment, in fact, in chapter 12, where the, the editor says, the preacher sought to find words of delight I, I'm not sure I would describe any of the words in here as words of delight, although obviously they were intended to be. But read through Ecclesiastes progressively. And it's a great barometer of where we're at spiritually. You may find the passages that deal with work suddenly start to speak to your situation, to your mindset, and you feel a resonance there. Yes, I, I do feel like I'm just getting on with the same old thing day after day. Or it may speak to your your sense of the injustice and the, and the corruption in the world that we live in, your frustration with that, and the growing sense of unease that when is God going to call all of this to account? Look carefully for the passages that speak most directly to you. And that's a good indication of where God may be putting a finger on your life to say, remember, this is not about life under the sun. That's past. For you, that's past. This is about where we're headed together now. And, and allow those moments, in those moments, to God to begin to adjust your focus, to readjust your focus, and restore your sense of hope. This will be an interesting challenge for us as a church. So pray with me, if you will. Father, this is a, a book, Ecclesiastes. You've given it to us. We, in fact, even in the book itself, it's clear to us that this was these words were given to us by the one shepherd. And as much as that shepherd represents your relationship with us, these words are given to us to move us forward and not to allow us to stay where we're at. And we do thank you, Father, for the fact that your commitment to moving us forward is a relentless one. You won't let us stay in the doldrums where we often settle. But that's a hard process for us, as you understand, Lord. And we pray that having picked up this book and having made a commitment to understanding how it speaks to our lives, that you would help us work through it, not to, to be overwhelmed by the truth that it speaks to, but to look beyond that to the bigger truth of what you're 
bigger word speaks to and the hope that gives us. We pray that our time together as a church reading through Ecclesiastes would be very important for us in how we grow together, but also how we build a sense of expectation, a focus, and a hope for where you're taking us. And we ask in Jesus' name.